We turn together to the book of Luke, chapter 1. Last week we began with Luke chapter 1, the first four verses. This morning we'll go through just a bit more. We'll make it down through the next section of Luke's Gospel to verse 25. Our text this morning, Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient for our faith and life. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative over you and me. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty... According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words." which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized they had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. 
After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach from the people. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we come before You this morning... For You alone, O Lord, have the words of life. Lord, we ask this morning that You would feed us from Your Word. That we might know more of who You are. That we might know more of what duty You require of us. And that we, O Lord, might be a people prepared for the coming once again of our Savior. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we pick back up in the Gospel of Luke here after the introduction at the very beginning in chapter 1. And as I mentioned last week, there is a danger here in studying the Gospel of Luke. And the danger is that this story is so familiar to you that you begin to fill in the gaps. You begin to skip over some of what is there trying to get to the next part of the story. The Christmas story is something that is everywhere, especially at this time of year. Oh, sure, there are some unsanctioned changes. Rudolph will somehow show up near the manger. There will be some kind of talking snowman in Judea. But in the main, we know this story, we think, better than almost anything else in the Bible. But this is a challenge because, you see, there is a great amount of detail that God has given to us in His Word so that we might understand why Jesus came. And Luke, of course, is the perfect man to tell us this. Dr. Luke is is a detail man. He is an investigative reporter. And so he begins at the beginning. He sets the stage for us. And so, this morning we will see the setting of the stage for the coming of the announcement of Jesus. And it is like a small play, a drama in and of itself, before the great drama of Jesus' story comes forward. And this drama appears in three acts, as it were. First, Luke will describe for us the time of trouble that is in our midst. The time of trouble. And then second, we will see the appearance of an angel. And then thirdly and finally, we will see the people responding to revelation. A time of trouble, the appearance of an angel, and responding to revelation. What do we mean then when we say that this is a time of trouble? Well, Luke gives us in very quick small detail, the context of what is going on. Remember what Luke's purpose is. It is to find out all of the details and to give to us an orderly account of the coming of Jesus Christ, His ministry, and His death. Context is important, isn't it? The way that we make statements depends on the rest of 
the context that is around them. And here we see Luke begin, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, this might seem like just a bare fact, but you have to understand what is going on here. I want you to not think about this as a quick written account of the Christmas story. I want you to think of this as if you were living today at the turn of the first century in Palestine. It's hot. Sandy. People are shuffling back and forth here and there. And you remember that it is in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Just hearing that would make you angry. It would make you angrier than a government shutdown and laws and judicial things all rolled up into one. You would say to yourself, how did this man get to be our king? He's a wicked man by anyone's stretch of the imagination. He murdered his own sons so that they might not murder him and take charge. He murdered his own wife because he was so paranoid. And it so deeply affected him that afterwards, in, when he woke up in the middle of the night, he would yell to his servants to bring his wife to him. And then would get angry when they wouldn't do it because, of course, he had already killed her. He was paranoid. The NSA had nothing on Herod. He would send out spies to go out and to find out what other people were saying about him. And that wasn't even enough. There were times when he would dress up in the the clothing of the lower classes and walk around and eavesdrop on conversations just so he could find out what was going on. It gets worse. Even though he built a second grand temple, he could not shake the fact that by birth he was not a Jew, but an Edomite. Yes, in these days the king in Judea was a descendant of Esau. The great enemy of the Jews. Think of that. It is... A hatred that goes back all the way to the days of the patriarchs. The Edomites had been constantly at war with the Israelites, trying to destroy them, and now one of their own is the king. Is this evidence of abandonment? Has God given up on Israel? You would probably think so, wouldn't you? Isn't this what we think when we look out, even in our own age, and all we can see as far as the eye and the mind can go is things getting worse? Do you feel that way at times? That there's no corner to turn. That we're past the point of no return. That we're not headed to the cliff. We're off the cliff and we're on our way down. I want you to well that up in your soul and that is what the people now experience times ten. God has abandoned us. We have no hope. There's an Edomite on the throne and he's wicked. But no, it gets even worse. He's not even really a real king. You see, the pagans are in charge of him. The Romans rule everything. It's their soldiers that do his bidding. He has to kowtow to them. Oh no! Wasn't it just a little while ago that Ezra and Nehemiah brought the people back and we built the walls and the new temple and we rejoiced and we thought God was back with us. We had returned and now all seems 
lost. We have pagan authorities over us. There's gods everywhere. And the Romans aren't even serious about their gods. Of course, they talk about them, but they don't really believe in them. The only thing they want you to do is worship the emperor and the government. If there's one thing that describes Roman rule and that will anger you and will touch you in your soul, you have to remember that in Judea, for Rome, as the cliche goes, it's all about the Benjamins. All Rome cared was that the tax money flowed. They didn't really care what Herod did. They didn't really care what the people did. Just keep the money coming because that's what we want. Do you have a feel for that now? A government that all they care about is money? Godlessness everywhere? Wickedness everywhere? That's in the days of Herod, king of Judea. What's the coming of the events in a little bit different context than cheerful animals and times. But it isn't just big picture problems. Here you have faithful followers of the Lord. And they're given names. Zechariah and Elizabeth. So it's not just that there are a faithful remnant. We talk about that, don't we? That there is a remnant that is faithful to God, even in the midst of the worst situations. But that remnant is not just some bland, faceless, small group. No, it is people like you and me. It is people with names like Zechariah and Elizabeth. And as they struggle to follow the Lord, to do His will, to follow His law, and as they do it, in all of their might. They're found righteous before the law. God has shown them favor. As they do this, they do it in the midst also of personal tragedy and difficult times. You know that as well, don't you? It's not just the things that the government do that get you angry, upset, or sad. It's not just society that causes you consternation. It's the things in your own life. The people around you who are sick. The children who just don't seem to get it. The marriages that are strained. The jobs that are hard. You have your own difficulties and challenges. And this is what makes us think that God somehow has not only abandoned the church, He's abandoned me. That's what... Zechariah and Elizabeth felt like. The Bible is very interesting. It can't be read too quickly. Because here we have a faithful couple who have been following the Lord out in the country. They are active in ministry. They are both from a line of the priests. They are people who are dedicated to the Lord. They are following through on what they believe. They are following the laws of God. They are doing as much as they can. They are continually righteous, Luke tells us. And then there is one little word here that if I were typesetting a Bible, I would put it in about 48-point font and read. But, do you see this? In verse 7. All we heard about them that is good, but they had no child. 
Now again, I ask you to step into their shoes. Don't just think, well, I know people that don't have children and I know people whose children have moved away. I want you to step into their shoes and that little word but is an entire lifetime of heartache. For you see, Zechariah would want an heir to carry on his role as a priest. But he doesn't have one. Elizabeth would see her value as a woman and would even see her righteousness and ability to follow God's law as being denied simply because she did not have a child. People would walk by her and assume she had sinned. And that was why she was barren. It would be a constant reminder of their heartache and pain and stigma. And they might say to themselves, why are we suffering? Why is there so much trouble here? It's bad enough that society is like it is. Why do we who are trying to serve the Lord have to suffer? Maybe you ask these same questions in your own heart. The immediate answer that comes to our mind is it must be some kind of punishment for sin. And to be honest, that's easy for us, isn't it? It only takes me but a moment to list off a litany of my sins that would fill a page that I would deserve punishment for. And then we also point at others. And we can easily see their sins. But that's not why we suffer all the time. There's also times when we suffer for the sake of righteousness, isn't it? This can even happen to the youngest among us. Your friends make fun of you. Because you go to church. Your friends make fun of you because you can sing Bible songs or you read the Bible. And this will carry up through high school, through college, and into the job, won't it? And we think we suffer sometimes for that. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here, and is a detail that Luke wants us to know, because not only is it true, it can be true in your life as well, sometimes we suffer for the glory of God. You see, Zechariah and Elizabeth went through an entire lifetime of pain and regret because God was going to glorify Himself in the birth of their child. He wanted everyone to know that He was to be glorified, that He was in charge, and that no rule of nature applied to God. He could break into the world and make His will come true. You see, this is a challenge for you and me as we live in our life, as we face our difficulties, as we have our own times of trouble. We want to say to ourselves, now what have I done to deserve this? I want you to strike that from your vocabulary. Even if you have done something to deserve it. I want you to say to yourself instead, how can I glorify God in the midst of of my suffering. That's what God is doing here. It's a time of trouble. Now, don't lose that feeling in your mind, the upset, the heartache, the shuffling of the feet, the, the despair that will never turn the corner. And now what happens is an appearance of an angel. Now, what happens here in the midst of this horrible life, in the midst of this horrible society, something happens to a man who has gone day in and day out and done his work in the face of the Lord. 
Zechariah has labored week upon week, year upon year, and now something different happens. You see, you have to understand that at this time, there were more priests than work. As a matter of fact, this division that we are told here, that Zechariah is in, the division of Abijah, there were 24 such divisions. And our best estimate from sources is that each one of these divisions had 700 priests. I'll save you the math. That's about 18,000 priests to do weekly sacrifices. So you can imagine... You're waiting an awful long time to get your turn to do the sacrifice. As a matter of fact, some men never get to perform a sacrifice. The only fair way was to cast lots. There was a a previous tradition in which they had the first person to be there would get to do the work. And you can imagine what happened with that. Someone got hurt because someone else shoved him out of the way to get there first. See, ancient Judea is a lot like modern Katy, Texas. And so a lot is cast and the lot comes upon Zechariah and he knows that he is about to sacrifice. Can you imagine the excitement? There's only two weeks a year that each division serves and by lot of these 700 men, he is now chosen to sacrifice at the altar of incense. You can imagine he goes home and he tells Elizabeth, you'll never believe what happened at work today. What? I was chosen. What do you mean? I'm going to do the sacrifice of incense. What an honor. You need to remember to pray, Zechariah. Well, well, of course. Well, this is your chance, Zechariah. You need to remember to pray. You're going to be going into the temple. You're going to go past all of the, the grandeur of the temple, past all of the people praying, going right into the holy place, right before the curtain of the holy of holies, right in the very presence of God. You've got to pray now, Zechariah. This is the best day ever. You see, Zechariah knew this. When you got to sacrifice, you only did it once. There were no repeat performances, no encores. This is his only chance. This is the highlight of his entire existence, the zenith of his professional career. And he goes in in this, and he's about to sacrifice, and on the right, he sees an angel. Now, I have to admit, with knowing that and a little bit of that build-up, it makes it seem a little bit different than just, he talked to the angel Gabriel. Right? And so in the middle of his best day ever, at the apex of his existence, he looks over and he sees this angel and he is struck with fear. The text says that he shakes and trembles. This is an older man who has seen a lot, who has worked around God's people and God's things for many, many years, but he is absolutely blown away by the presence of the angel. As a brief aside, this should, this should prevent us from viewing the things of God like precious moments, dolls. We're so casual with God. We think of angels as cute beings. No. In the face of the holiness of a servant of God, not even God Himself, a priest is struck 
with such fear that he can't compose himself. This is a far cry from calling the living triune God the big guy upstairs. This is true holiness and awe. But what happens here is is that the angel comes to him and he begins to speak. He says to Zechariah, Do not be afraid. He comforts him, for your prayer has been heard. Again, we have to remember our context. This is not just a messenger of God coming and saying to Zechariah, I know you've been praying a long time. I just wanted to let you know, prayer's been answered. Have a great day. No, there's much more going on here. For you see, when Zechariah sees this angel, he realizes that God is about to speak, and God has not spoken in two times the length of our nation's existence. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn back to the book of Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 4, Actually, in verse 3, he says in verse one, chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then in chapter 4, at verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. You see, for 400 years, the longest period of Israel's existence, there has been nothing. Not a word. Not a prophecy. Not a chastisement. God has been completely silent. They have been completely without the Word of God. You have to understand what that does to a people. Not only have all of the bad things been happening to them that we've described, God has been quiet during all of the worst of it. For 400 years, they have heard Nothing. And now, the silence is broken. This is not just an angel post-it note. This is not just about a family. This is about the living God breaking open the universe to do something that will change everything. 400 years of silence. And... Then he begins to speak. And he says, Zechariah, yes, I know you by name. Let me tell you, your prayer has been answered. Do not be afraid. You will have a son. His name will be John. And there will be joy and gladness. And so the long-awaited answer to a prayer comes. The obvious question then is, what is the prayer? Well, our first instinct, is, even as I have said, is to say that Zechariah is in the temple praying for a son. Who knows how long he's been praying for a son? Perhaps some little tiny part of him believes the memorized story of Abraham and Sarah, who were so old, the Bible says, they were about dead. And God blessed them with a son. And he says... This son that you will have, it's not just a kid. 
It is a joy for everyone. He will be known as great before the Lord. He will be a prophet. God hasn't spoken in 400 years, Zechariah, and your son is going to speak for the Lord, just like Elijah, just like Isaiah, just like Jeremiah. Wow. Imagine that. You've been longing for a child, and someone comes up to you and says, your child will be Winston Churchill, George Washington, Michael Jordan, and Joe Montana combined. I was just hoping to have a kid. Can you? I mean, now he's really got to be shaking. Can you imagine this? He's going to be a powerful prophet. But again here, I don't think that's even the prayer. There is rejoicing. But the prayer that is being answered is not a prayer for a son. The son is a part of an answer to the prayer. For you see, when Zechariah goes into the temple before the Holy of Holies and Elizabeth says to him, you have to remember to pray, I don't think she's saying, you have to remember to pray for us so we can have a son. I think what she's saying is, Zechariah, you know we've lived our entire lives faithful to the Lord. You know we have longed for the fulfillment of Malachi. You know we long for redemption. We long for the Messiah to come and to push away all of this sin, all of this misery, and to redeem the people of Israel and to put Israel back in its rightful place. Pray for the redemption of God's people. And that's what he does. He stands before that curtain and he prays and Gabriel says, your prayer has been answered and your son will announce it. This is much more than just a kid is going to be born. This is much more than just a nation is going to be born. This is God is about to be on the move and to redeem His people. It is an answer to Malachi. You see, that's why Gabriel says this, that your son... In verse 16, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and He will go before Him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Prepared for what? For the coming of the great messenger of the covenant. He will work. He will fix relationships horizontally among fathers and children. He will fix relationships vertically between the disobedient and the just. That is the living God. This is more than a son and an answer for prayer. This is an answer to every faithful person of God's prayer. Salvation is coming, Gabriel has said. And what's the response to this revelation? Zechariah said, Is this really true? How can I know this? You look at how old I am. Now we can laugh. We can say, He's so foolish. Why doesn't he believe? Until we realize that he is we. We are the same, are we not? When God reveals to us 
the source and place of life and hope, even we who embrace the Lord Jesus Christ do not fully believe Him. We do not fully trust Him. We are always hedging our bets. We're always needing to repent. We're always sinning. We're always trying to find a way to help God along. And there is also the fact that for many of us, There was a time, and for some of us even right now, when we do not believe that salvation is coming. We look and we say, there's no such thing as a God. There's no such thing as forgiveness. There's no Jesus. This is all a nice story. But really, get real. Start saving for retirement. And you see, this is what happens to us. We are like Bible people. And his response, it is so logical, isn't it? I need to know, tell me, I can't just believe what you're saying to me. But I want you to think about this in the context. Gabriel has just told him that his son will be born to prepare a people. And Zechariah is saying, I'm not prepared. I'm not ready. Do you see what the Lord uses? He uses broken people like you and me to do unbelievable things. He's saying, you're going to have a son to make the people ready and you're not even ready. You're not even ready for a son. He doubts. And then there's an ironic lesson that comes out. Gabriel looks at him. And he says, I am Gabriel, who am before the face of the Lord. Now again, this is not just a name that we could put down so we know who to sing Christmas carols to. The last time we saw Gabriel... He was speaking to Daniel. And he was saying to Daniel, there will come a time when Israel will be redeemed, when her weeks of sorrow and trouble will be over, when the Messiah will come and visit. And now he is saying, just like I said to Gabriel, Zechariah, I'm saying to you, what I said was going to happen is happening. God sent the same messenger. And then he does something exceedingly ironic. He says, You know, if you can't believe this good news, if you can't believe the gospel, you shouldn't be telling anybody about it. You won't talk. Now think about that. He's just heard the best news of his entire life. And he can't tell anyone. Can you imagine that if that were you? Take it down about a hundred pegs. You get the promotion you've always wanted at work. And you go home and you can't tell your wife. Ouch. You have completely aced the course that was you thought was going to kill you. A plus. And you can't tell your parents. This is an opportunity of joy. And Zechariah can't share this joy at all. The gospel is all about shouting and singing, and he can't even talk. He becomes both mute and, I think, if we look at verse 62 later in this chapter, he's deaf as well, because to get his attention, they have to sign him. He has no way of communicating with the people who are around him. He actually comes out of the temple, and the people are wondering, what's going on? took you an awful long time to do a sacrifice, Zechariah. 
And they see that he can't speak. And you can imagine that one moment of doubt. He wants to tell all of them, the silence is over. Malachi is being fulfilled. Redemption is here. Everyone, leap for joy. He can't say a thing. Could you imagine that? Why do we see this? Luke could have jumped from the Gabriel announcement down to verse 24 and 25 with Elizabeth being all happy, right? That would make a much better movie. A little bit of editing on the cutting room floor and it would look much better. Why does Luke give us this? Why has Luke written this Gospel? You're going to hear this week after week after week after week. Look at verse 4 that you might have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This doubt of Zechariah and the subsequent difficulty is revealed to us so that we might be more certain. We need to feel Zechariah's pain that he can't tell anyone. Why do we need to feel his pain? Because you can talk. Do you long to tell others the good news of the One who has come? Do you long to tell others of the joy of the Gospel? Are you speaking and singing at the top of your lungs? Or are you deaf and mute? Don't think an angel has shut your mouth. You see, Luke has told us this for a purpose. He wants us to know so that we will be excited about the Gospel. We will be excited about what God is doing. And we will be excited about the return of our Lord. Elizabeth gives us that final picture in conclusion. For she, of course, takes God at His Word. Somehow, you can imagine how long it must have taken with drawing in the dirt and pointing and a really, really mean game of charades. Zechariah lets Elizabeth know what happened. And she's awestruck. And she's thankful. And she says, the Lord has taken away my reproach. Now, I think on some level what she's talking about is nobody's going to make fun of me anymore about not having a kid. But because we know she's a woman who has walked with the Lord for year after year after year. She knows God's Word. She knows God's promises. I think that word reproach means more than just people making fun of me because I don't have a kid. I think she knows that even though she has walked with the Lord, even though she serves in the temple, even though she's memorized God's Word, she is still a sinner in need of grace. She says, God is going to take away my reproach. Do you hear this message? Do you believe God at His Word? Because if you do, you must speak along with her. No matter how long you have walked with the Lord, no matter how faithful you have been upon His ordinances and upon His people, you have to understand that you have reproach. But the good news of the Gospel is that one has come who takes away your reproach. There's hope. There's hope for God's people. Because Jesus has come.
Because Jesus is coming again. Let's pray.